Business, the musical theatre talk show podcast. Welcome to part one of our discussion of the band's visit. Our guests are David Cromer, Katrina Lenk, Itamar Moses and David Yazbek. First, please welcome your host, Joe Bunker. Hello and welcome to Piece by Piece, the musical theatre talk show where we unpack iconic musicals with quizzes, songs and conversations from the people most in the know. I'm Joe Bunker, and today I'm joined from across the Atlantic Ocean by four incredible guests to explore one of the most bewitching musicals I've ever seen, a show which quietly, almost without you realising it, breaks your heart and then pieces it back together again. It's Mar Moses and David Yazbek's The Band's Visit. I'm thrilled to say we have both of the writers here, as well as its director and leading lady. But my first guest is someone I've now known for a few years and was the reason I initially went and saw this show. Um, As an actor, you might have seen him on the telly in uh, the Showtime series Billions. And as a director, his incredible resume includes the Chicago and off-Broadway productions of Our Town and The Adding Machine, and most recently, the Broadway premiere of The Sound Inside. It's the Tony Award-winning director of the band's visit, David Cromer! Hello! Hello, Joe. Uh, I said that as though there was an audience here going to applaud. Yes. I don't know. I was <laughs> slightly right. overblown. No, there, there is an audience. They just didn't clap. <laughs> they're like, oh, yeah, okay. He seems fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's the, it's the London audience for our town going. Oh, you're still you're still sore about that, aren't you? People love that show, David. You know. I know. I know. <laughs> That's where Joe and I met. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you for having us on. Really cool to have you here. And I'm so glad I got to see your show. I came and saw it twice. I saw it once uh, when I was in town. And then when I heard it was closing, I flew back to see it again um, because I didn't want to miss it. And I'm so glad I did because part of me was like, oh, it'll come to London. It'll be fine. And then (laughs) theatre stopped. So I'm really, really glad I did. Um, David, how would you describe your theatrical tastes? What are the sorts of things that interest you? The band's visit was kind of the crystallization of it. It's hard to follow it up. I like something that is uh, seemingly small and uh, without a lot of um, hokey events, but explores, you know, the real moment-to-moment struggles of the day. And I know that doesn't sound fun, <laughs> but, but the band's visit sort of is was, was you know, a, a gift from heaven uh, on that front. The first line of the film and of the show is... Uh, Once, not long ago, a group of musicians came to Israel from Egypt. You probably didn't hear about it. It wasn't very important. And and that's that's sort of it's the deceptively seismic story that I like that just takes place while people are wandering through their day. You know, it was first crystallized for me when I was young and I first finally got Chekhov in college, or at least, you know, to the extent that a college student can can get Chekhov first got it. So that's that's the stuff I'm interested in and uh, the stuff generally they come to me for. Yeah. Now, you seem to sort of specialize in making the ordinary extraordinary. Um, and you're pretty good at it. So, you know, keep, keep on keeping on. Um, All right. But has the extraordinary success of this show changed much uh, before the world sort of melted? Did life change once you won a Tony and all that jazz? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I had a narrative that I was very drawn to, that I was some kind of underdog in this life, which of course I'm not. You know, <laughs> uh, I never have been a say white male. But uh, it was difficult to adjust to the idea that you weren't going to have to kind of biography yourself in order to get into a conversation. So that was fun. 
Right. I've been involved with some things that were embraced really passionately, like the band's visit was, and it's I, I like it happening. It's it's a it's a little cocoon. That's a clever observation. I enjoy success. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, there was that New York Times article, wasn't there? That described you as uh, is David Cromer the most talented theater director that Americans have never heard of? I feel like they've heard of you now. You- Turns out the answer was no. Yeah, <laughs> but they asked. They asked the question, and that's. What we're really here to do. Right. It was still in the New York Times. So you're now David Cromer Brackets, the band's visit. There you go. Which is, you know, that's all you need. <laughs> there you go. Um, but somebody else who is already an established talent and a pretty big deal, but is now undeniably an extraordinarily huge deal, is my next guest. Hot on the heels of her acclaimed performance in Paula Vogel's play Indecent, she played cafe owner Dina in the band's visit, both off-Broadway and then on The Great White Way, winning herself a Tony for Best Actress in a Musical. Then, earlier this year, she was back on Broadway playing Bobby in the Marianne Elliott production of Company. I'm delighted to welcome oh. Katrina Lang. Hello. <laughs> when you started that, I was like, wait, who's here? That person <laughs> sounds great. How are you doing, Katrina? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, you had just opened, you'd started previews, hadn't you, in Company on Broadway when the world turned upside down? Yeah. Oh, yeah. how many shows did you get to do? I think we'd had a week of previews. I want to say. So we were in the middle of our second week of previews. How was that experience? It was crazy. Like, you know, when you're at that time in putting on a show, you have, you're doing tech rehearsals all day and then you like have an hour and a half for dinner and then you do a show. So you just are basically living at the theater for 12 hours a day and more so for the crew and directors. So everyone's just like living at the theater. Um, So you feel already really excluded from what's happening in the world and sort of in a bubble and we were doing things like not allowing guests backstage and not signing autographs at the door, which was weird. But I think we all had this sense of like, this is just temporary. This is just like going to be, this will be solved. This will be solved in, in a minute. And then, so it, it yeah. was just a very bizarre thing to get the call in the morning. It was like, I think it was a Wednesday of, uh, we're not uh doing the show tonight and probably not tomorrow. It was a very strange thing. And now so much time has passed. We have been apart. The cast has been apart more than we've been together in the amount of time that this has been. So it feels like, did we, was there a show? Was was there theater? Did anything, what? It's kind of like the band's visit. Was it a mirage? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and how do you have to sort of keep yourself match fit? Do you sort of sing through the songs? That must be a really strange hiatus. Um, it's actually been really great. I've um, I'm still taking voice lessons, studying with Joan later, and she's incredible. And it's really been great to have like stuff to work on and expanding repertoire and continuing to practice. And you played uh, Dina in both the iterations of the show for the entirety so you had about three years of playing that character what was it like leaving that behind you know as as actors as as artists we're very used to things things end and you have to move on and um, look forward to the next thing and the next opportunity and it's always it's always sad and and wonderful you're sad to see it go but so grateful for the experience that you had and for the connections that you made with the cast and crew and musicians and just just a general feeling of overwhelming gratitude and that I get to know I get to know David Cromer and David Jasbeck and Ijma Moses and you know, yeah <laughs> like okay and that's forever yeah. yeah but you trained uh, didn't you originally major in was it viola and, and uh, it started as a viola performance major so how did you get from there to here well I was trying to do all, all of the things um, I'd been playing viola since I was six and also I'd been a dancer since I was oh, three, 
four or something, um, and been in theater. So I was trying to do all of these things at all times and just try to keep doing them through college. And it just wound up not working um, through like just semantics and scheduling. So I had to kind of make a choice. So I switched halfway through to a music theater and just general music degree. So I could try to keep doing all of the things. <laughs> and anyone who's not seen Katrina uh, doing If I Were a Rich Man from Film <laughs> Roof playing and singing, like you've, you've got to watch it. Oh. Olivia put me onto that. And I was like, this is outrageous. <laughs> and then on the Sondheim concert, you're playing guitar. And did you do the string arrangements for that as well when you sang? Uh, yeah, but, yeah. yeah, but it was just, I mean... I just was pulling chords from what Sondheim had written. So it wasn't, you know, yeah. I was just stealing his notes. Yeah. You're, you're right. You're not very talented. I, I agree. <laughs> um, it's really great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Nice to be here with you. So we're going to talk a little bit about the band's visit. We're going to talk a lot about the band's visit. But first, I'm going to talk about the band's visit. If you've not yet had the pleasure of making its acquaintance, the band's visit is based on the 2007 Israeli film of the same name, written and directed by Iran Kolarin. It tells the story of an Egyptian police force orchestra who visit Israel to play a concert at the Arab Cultural Center in the city of Petatikva, and due to a mix-up when buying bus tickets, inadvertently wind up in the middle of the desert in a village called Bet Hatikva with a B. Uh, the band's visit opened off-Broadway at the Atlantic in December 2016 and went on to win a trunk full of awards at the Drama Desk, Critic Circle and Lucille Lortel Awards. After opening on Broadway in November 2017, it swept up at the Tony Awards, winning 10, including the big six. Best musical, score, book, director, leading actress, leading actor. Oh, and did I mention the original cast album picked up a Grammy for best musical theatre album? <laughs> There it is. Yazbek's waving it on screen. <laughs> In case we didn't believe it. Oh, you guys. Um, I mean, it's an astonishing achievement for any show, but especially so for such a small, nuanced, sophisticated, understated gem of a musical telling a, a gentle story about unlikely friendships formed in an unfamiliar place and using a musical language unlike anything heard on Broadway before. I have a million questions I want to ask the creators of this show, and I'm thrilled that they're here. First up, it's a writer whose plays include Bach at Leipzig and The Four of Us, as well as books for the musicals Nobody Loves You and The Fortress of Solitude. It's the librettist of the band's visit, Itamar Moses. Hello. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm well under yeah. the circumstances. Can't complain. How are you? I'm really well. It's great to see you. I want to know uh, where you start when you're adapting a film that is already pretty perfectly formed and you're translating it to another medium yeah so so first of all you um you feel gratitude that the film is so perfectly formed i mean book writing above all is is like a structural challenge and uh when the structure of the movie is really really sound it's subtle but it's very it's on this like very firm foundation so um and and you mentioned fortress of solitude which was the musical i did right before Band's Visit, which was an attempt to adapt Jonathan Lethem's 500-page novel. And that's a much, much bigger leap, you know, because at least screenwriting uh, and musical theater writing are both dramatic forms, you know, built out of right. scenes. Um, so my attitude really was, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Um, I didn't want to make changes just for the sake of putting my own stamp on it or making changes. I wanted to make changes for the purpose of taking what worked about the movie and making it work theatrically. Um, and were you in conversation with Iran Coloran as you were working on the piece and developing? Yeah, I mean, a, a little bit and kind of distantly. I mean, he was very uh, supportive of, of, the, of the project. And he, he had spent 10 years, I think, working on the movie, doing draft after draft after draft of the screenplay before he settled on the one that, um, 
that he ended up shooting. So, so Oren Wolf, our producer, actually shared with me like five or six drafts of the screenplay oh, of the wow. movie so I could see all these avenues that Iran had tried and then not. Uh, and then, you know, he, I think, read a, one or two drafts of mine and said a couple, you know, small things. It, it was the perfect attitude towards something like this because he was happy with the success of the film and sort of didn't feel the need to control what we were doing. He sort of allowed it to be his own thing and, um, you know, gave his two cents when when asked, but, yeah. What are the sort of particular challenges for you as a librettist when you're dealing with something, well, A, turning something to a musical where a lot of the dramatic real estate is taken up by song, and also for this particular piece where space and silence and subtext occupy quite a lot of the space as well. It must be quite an interesting job trying to sort of marry those things. Yes, in the sense that, you know, any any adaptation, especially something that sort of already works the way it is, you have to ask the question, like, why do the adaptation at all? Sure. And uh, in this case, when Yazbek and I first talked about it, we were sort of like, well, what he accomplishes in the movie with silences and with images, with close-ups of faces or with, you know, pans across the bleak desert landscape, we can't do that on stage. We can do, Yazbek often describes uh, a song, especially a solo, as like a musical close-up. Um, mm. The movie hints at all of these depths inside of the people, these yearnings that they can't express. And we thought, well, lyrics can be poetic. You know, music can communicate something beyond language. And so we can dig into those spaces inside the people. We knew it wouldn't be about big production numbers so much as about delving through the tools of musical theater. Sure. So is it kind of liberating in that sense that there is so little event to deal with? Does that create more space for you to <laughs> delve? It was, I mean, it was, it was a little bit scary in the sense that uh, we, you know, periodically would ask ourselves, does, does this sustain? Does it need more? Do we need to pump in more overt plot? Um, to which one of us was always able to assure, reassure the other, whoever was freaking out, no, no, no. We took we took turns, but um, but then it was liberating because we knew we were doing something unusual. There's something exciting. It feels a little transgressive to do something that um, the form you're working in is not known for or is not supposed yeah. to do, and so that was motivating. Yeah, and also it's so quiet. One of the things that struck me when I saw it was that, like at the beginning, you're like, "Well, well, sorry." And you sort of have to lean in and you, you think, oh, is this going to annoy me? But like you attune so quickly because everyone just like sits up a little straighter and listens because like usually on Broadway shows, you're used to being pinned to the back of your chair and assaulted by sound. And it, it creates a, a different sort of listening and um, sort of watching experience, which is incredibly rewarding. Um, it's, it's actually amazing how quickly you kind of tune into this new uh, sort of world. It's much more subtle. It's yeah. You had a pretty cool writing partner for this show, a man whose diverse career includes comedy writing for David Letterman, writing songs and background music for TV, five pop albums as a singer-songwriter pianist, and the book and lyrics for five Broadway musicals, The Full Monty, Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown, and most recently, Tootsie. It could only be David Yazbek. <laughs> With a series of comedy props that nobody listening to us at home will be able to appreciate, but we're all having a joyful time. How are you? This is delightful. It's just great to see David and Inamar and Katrina. I have to ask you something before you, we will talk about your show, but I, I heard a story and I need to know if it's true. Is it true that you once gutted a fish live on stage during a gig? Oh, way more than once. Really? I mean, I, I, is that a thing? Yeah, is the, that like the, a signature move? The band that I was uh, touring with for a couple of years early on when I had my first albums um, was a trio. 
And it was a bass player, a drummer, and me. And I played piano. And every song I'd play a solo. And I started getting really sick of soloing. So I started doing stuff in the same way that Katrina can like whip out a violin or something when she's not singing. I started showing off other talents that I had. One of the things I did was uh, I would take a blue fish or some other, whatever the seasonal fish was, and I would I wouldn't gut it. I would fillet it, which is much okay. more. It's much more of a talent, <laughs> and then uh, it's more subtle. But we would do other things too. Like I would hire a local masseuse to to uh, set up a table, and I get a massage while singing through the whole. I mean, Amazing. needless to say, I stopped touring. You know, early. You can only sustain it so long. So let's talk about your music. What are the sort of musical influences that contribute to your musical brain? It's very wide. I figured starting with. Every theme song and incidental music from every television show of my childhood. I was impressing some uh, a friend of mine who came over with the fact that I can sing you <laughs> not just the theme song, but the music coming in and out of commercials to Gilligan's Island, <laughs> Green Acres, you know, like a, like a million different shows. Um, at the same time, I was growing up in New York City. And hearing all kinds of, even within my the building I lived in, I was hearing a million kinds of music. There was a flamenco dancer in our building. There was a couple of professional opera singers, some teachers. Um, and out in Central Park, there was Afro-Cuban stuff going on. So uh, very eclectic. The Arabic music started filtering in when I first went to Lebanon with my father when I was like seven years old. And uh, that's when it sort of got in there and really sort of captured my attention. On another trip to Lebanon a little later, my dad took me to see Miles Davis outdoors. Wow. And that was a mind blower. My favorite band is XTC. I got to work with them. So that's my short answer. Yeah, amazing. <laughs> you don't want to hear the long yeah. one. Yeah. And so how did you go about finding a musical language for this show? Was it all kind of just in there? You were just kind of needed to filter out the, the, the sounds that were going to work for this show? Yeah, I, I mean, 80% of what I do, I do by, it's a negative thing. It's like, it's what doesn't work as opposed to what does work. I mean, I, I sort of hit, hit the right tone early, but then there were a couple of mistakes. There was, <laughs> there was one or two songs that clearly weren't right musically. You make your little mistakes, you bump into some walls, and the, the path becomes more and more clear. You have to trust your own instincts and your own taste around that stuff. I know the lexicon, I know the scales, you know, I know what that music tastes like, what it smells like. But, uh, you know, when you're doing a song that isn't specifically Arabic classical music, what works and what doesn't? So luckily there's a character who's a, a fan of Chet Baker, who's a jazz guy, so I could use my jazz stuff, you know, like instincts. You mentioned about the different sort of tonality of a lot of this music. It's it's kind of it's scales and harmonies that we're maybe not so accustomed to in uh, Western music, especially on Broadway. But also instrumentation is quite different uh, to a conventional lineup. Um, and we're going to play a little bit of the overture now, just as a little sort of taster for our listeners. through some of the instruments that we're hearing that maybe we're a bit less familiar with. You're hearing the instruments that the band plays live, 
you're hearing uh, some Western instruments that that lend themselves to that kind of music and have been part of it for a very long time, like violin, you know, a fretless instrument. The uh, the oud, which is kind of a lute with a rounded back, which also is fretless, and um, and that's important because there are these uh, microtones, these little half tones, that give that music its tanginess. You know, it gives it a particular thing, and you can't you can't fake it. You can't Aladdin it. Yeah. There's also the dumbek uh, or darbuka, which is like an hour-shaped drum, and a clarinet, which is part of the band, and cello, which was cool because you know it can it can handle parts of the bass as well as a lot of other stuff. Yeah, and so we have the the onstage band, but there's also a pit band as well. And so what was in the pit band? The pit band that never left the pit was a, a kit drum, and he was also a very good darbuka player and an excellent, uh, you know, played the Arabic stuff too, the, the, hoop, the big hoop drum and the darbuka and the rick, which is like the tambourine. And then there was a bass player. And then there was our musical director playing a, one keyboard and our associate director who was playing the second keyboard. So by, by using those keyboards, we could sort of fatten the sound sometimes, make things sound occasionally orchestral, we never went overboard because we wanted it always to sound like our onstage band. Part of the track of the show is these guys who were playing roles would have to race to the basement of the theater, run into the pit <laughs> to play things. Things had to be staged in order to get the band from one place to the other. Things had to be written to get the band from one place to the other. It was interesting. Yeah. There's a sign on the wall at the top of the stairs just off stage saying like, do not stand in this spot at these times in the show. Cause you were just going to yeah. get run over <laughs> by three guys in blue uniforms. Yeah. <laughs> Carrying cello. <laughs> and how did you find them? Was it people that regularly play for Broadway shows or were they just from a whole different world? Really? No, with maybe one exception or two exceptions. It was quite a process, but it says something about how many great musicians there are out there that you've never heard of yeah. that this that this band came together and the, the quality of it. There's just this great spectrum of there's people in the pit. There are these musicians who play in the pit, but also walk on stage. Then there's this other brilliant musician who actually played a role in the show, like a major role. And who I always like to mention, Georgia Bood, really, really good actor, good comic actor. Some of the people who had never been on stage before by the time they were in the show for six months and maybe a sub, a sub was coming in, they'd start giving the sub sort of acting advice. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, it was a great, great experience. Let's get on and talk a bit about the, the show itself. Okay, so the band's visit opens. The first thing we see is projected onto the stage. It's this line that David Cromer said earlier on. Once not long ago, a group of musicians came to Israel from Egypt. You probably didn't hear about it. It wasn't very important. And the orchestra played the overture. The first scene is at the airport. The Alexandria Ceremonial Police Orchestra is stranded at Tel Aviv Airport. They're here to play a concert at the Arab Cultural Center in Petatikva, but the van that was meant to pick them up has not arrived. So Tufik, the conductor, decides they're going to take a bus instead and gets Haled, one of the younger members of the band, to go to the ticket booth and pay for the bus tickets. Haled, slightly distracted by the lady in the booth, asks if she likes Chet Baker and sings My Funny Valentine to her and comes back with tickets to the wrong town. Not that they know it yet. But David Cromer, do you want to just give us an introduction to the boys in the band? Who are they and what are they like? You know, I was stole as much from the film as I could carry. You know, it's an image from the film of, of this line of 
men in blue uniforms. It re recurs, it repeats several times in the film. And so that was sort of the first physical image of the show was seeing that, them waiting. So they're a little bit of a monolith when that first arrives. You don't know any characters or anything. So you're getting information about who each one is. And the first thing that happens is one of them steps forward. And it's a very small move. And that's Tufik, that is the uh, conductor of the Alexandria Ceremonial Police Orchestra, which is played by Tony Shalhoub uh, on Broadway. And then later by um, Sasson Gabay, who played the role in the film. We had a lot of cross-pollination with the film. We first meet him, he's a little bit of a martinet. He does not have a, a collegial relationship with his band. <laughs> there was an early song where the characters referred to as having uh, two sticks up his ass. <laughs> Incidentally, that was one of the walls that I hit. <laughs> so what is that lyric? Here we are again, again standing, standing in, in a line. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm proud of this rhyme. I rhymed, it was like playing halls with bad acoustics, working for the guy with two sticks up his ass. That's good. <laughs> DVD extras. <laughs> <laughs> so we meet we meet him the, he is under an enormous amount of pressure that's the first thing we learn uh he is quite grim uh is carrying some tension we don't understand we then meet his sort of right hand man simone we meet uh the the, the characters in the line start to emerge and take form very early on we learn that this one character kamal who was played by george Boot, is is very very nervous to be in israel as an egyptian uh as the soldiers who just guard the airport with you know, automatic weapons are, are walking by, you know. And then we also meet uh, Khaled, who is another major character, uh, sort of the Lothario character who makes the mistake. Uh, he is introduced slightly deceptively in the story as uh, someone who's sort of just out to get laid, as opposed to what we eventually kind of learn is a is a deeper is a deeper purpose, and then the mistake is made, and it's an interesting because of how rigorous we had to be, and every single nut and bolt, every single choice in that scene had to be wildly crafted because we were giving an enormous amount of information in a show that was not going to give you an enormous amount of information. It's a, it's a great microcosm of how the adaptation worked generally, actually, because yeah. if you watch yeah. the movie, we're with the band arriving at the airport, hanging out in the airport, going through the airport, being on the, like there's a, a, lot, a whole bunch of scenes before they arrive in the town. And I knew sort of instinctively that we would get one. Yeah. We got one scene and then we have to be into music and into, because there's also no music in that scene. It's like a cold open for a musical where it's just dialogue. So I was like, we get one gesture. So you had to establish all of these characters with like at most two or three lines of dialogue. And I would say that it was overall our aesthetic to avoid something that musicals do fairly often, which is to compress uh, five scenes into one by blasting out three lines of information loud and open, as opposed to like getting feelings about things and trying to let the audience develop insights and catch right. the turn of a head or something like that. So it was also kind of the flag we were planting uh, about how we were going to offer information and how things were going to be uh, discovered. And just for those of us uh, who have limited knowledge of the geopolitics, what is the significance of an Egyptian band being in Israel? It's interesting. The film and the, the play both take place basically in the mid-90s. So the, Israel and Egypt have had a peace treaty since the late 70s, I guess. But some of the early pivotal wars in the region after the uh, founding of the state took place between Israel and Egypt. So it's sort of a, I guess you could describe it as a cold piece. Um, the situation now is it's gone through many more iterations of complexity, but in the mid 90s, it was in a moment of relative optimism because uh, the Israeli left was in power. There was a peace process underway that people still hoped might be successful. It's like a suspended tension where the presence of an Egyptian band is not necessarily 
freighted, but everyone's wondering if it might be freighted. Everyone's waiting for the person on the other side to let them know whether this is a freighted interaction or not. <laughs> so it's like it's like a potential right. tension, you yeah. know, that hangs in the air. That is a really interesting description. Um, I have one question though. This is like maybe maybe me being dumb. Given that the stakes are quite high for the band, why does Tufik give Harley the job of getting the tickets? Because surely Simone was going to do it, and he was like, he's like maybe boring but sensible. Yeah. And then it's like, oh no, we'll give it to like the yeah. the less reliable guy. Yeah, I think he sees it as like a teachable moment. Uh, he's like, he's trying to he's trying to turn Haled into a respectable person, and giving him responsibilities is how he decides. Right, because he's like a surrogate son to do that. Yeah. 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 You know, but there's a lot of questions. Why is there only one phone in town? <laughs> you know what I mean? There's just there's a lot. Of I, I'm gonna pick holes in all of these as we go. Yeah, that's right. That's why we're here. So that kind of functions as like a kind of prologue. Is then the second scene we are in better tikva. I can't every time <laughs> better tikva. Got to get it right. Um, <laughs> and the people of the town who we don't really know yet, but sing this song about their listlessness, which is waiting. Tufik and his band arrive, asking for directions to the cultural center, and it turns out they've come to the wrong town there is no cultural center in fact as dina says there is no culture so here we are um ismar do you want to talk a little bit about the characters that we meet in this town just so we've met the guys in the band now um who are the people who live in this town and we're gonna meet and spend the next hour and a half with we meet yes this collection of listless people first we meet poppy waiting what's new here you're waiting i'm waiting Cause that's what we do here Same as we do every day for something I don't know to happen You know just something different to happen Just waiting for something to change Who's this sort of young, hopeful, romantic Who works at Dina's Cafe um, Whose problem is going to turn out to be a sort of total inability to, to speak in the presence of women uh, who he might want to date, which there's a little moment in the song that sets that up. We meet um, Itzik and Iris, who are a youngish married couple with a with a young baby, and we get the sense that he's kind of unemployed and and kind of couch bound during the day, and maybe hanging out at at Dina's cafe, uh, aimless, and that Iris is working hard in some sort of job in the medical field. Uh, picking up after him is the first image we have. So we get a little gesture that establishes the two of them. And we meet Dina, who who sort of gazes off across the desert um, <laughs> as we meet her looking for something else, um, which, is a, which is a great way of setting up that character. And then we also see like all of the other townspeople in this town who are going to, you know, of, of various size roles who we'll meet as we go along. And so, Katrina, who who is Dina then, uh, and and what does her day to day life consist of? How has she ended up there? Well, she, um, like we said, she runs the the one cafe in town, and um, food generally brings people around. <laughs> so it's kind of like the central hub, I would say. And she's quite mysterious, and her reasons for being in the town are not explicit. And I think that's part of the fascination with all of the characters in the show. You're not, in the story, you're never really sure, except for the Egyptian band that arrives in, in <laughs> Beth Atikva. You don't really know how anyone else got there and why they're there. And maybe also we kind of lose track of when we're in a place, we yeah. don't really remember how we got to this point yeah. and why are we still here. But that's not really something you're actively thinking about. You're just sort of in a place. And uh, she's 
so herself, so fully in herself, and so, I think, accepting of her own faults and mistakes and thereby uh, accepting of other people. Yeah. And not seemingly so, but very generous of heart and spirit, even though she seems a little intimidating or standoffish. It's, it's quite the opposite. Right, yeah, she's, she's direct. She's very yeah, good. And yeah. there's that line that I love in Waiting where she thinks about, you know, you know what I think, there's, there's two kinds of waiting. I'm paraphrased, but it's the, the kind where you're expecting something to happen and the kind where you're resigned to the fact that nothing is coming around the corner. Yeah. But you're still waiting. But you're still waiting. Still waiting. Yeah, yeah. You, you get the yeah. sense that like she's somehow gone from one to the other. Like at one point, maybe she had aspirations, and they've kind of just quietly, sort of diminuendoed. Yeah, we talked about this a lot. Like how to how to communicate something, the essence of waiting, and what that feels like, um, and it's it, it being an active state rather than a resigned state. It's like the the like you're always a little bit antsy, but in a not a specific way, but a general feeling of. That, that waiting is active, yeah. I mean, that was, again, an uh, ambitious and subtle uh, state we were seeking that came from both the feel of the film, from the lyrics about what waiting meant, and in life, people want something, you know what I mean? Or in the theater, we talk about I want songs, but in life, you have a desire for, an urge, and even if it's just to perpetuate the species, we have a lot of appetites, but this town was going to be a kind of a heightened poetic version of the life force just before it stops. Do you know what I mean? That you're maybe not wanting so much anymore. Maybe you're waiting now. It's the state right before giving up, possibly, you know, but it is not quite that. Yeah. So as listless or as still as the town can seem and as spare and silent and stuck as it can seem, the song's called Waiting. And they say it over and over and over again. And Dina says this thing about the, the sort of declension from, hey, to... Uh, okay, you know, <laughs> we're not dead yet. And you had to find this tension and stillness that, that kept the, the, the little thread of the thing moving forward, even when it sort of appeared non-traditionally to be standing still. And from what I remember, you used the, the, uh, the revolve really beautifully in that, because even when people were standing mm -hmm. still, the revolve was moving really slowly. Based on the lyric. <laughs> yeah, I love that lyric. It's really meta, isn't it? <laughs> Sometimes it feels like we're moving in a circle around and around <laughs> with the same scenery going by, <laughs> which is sung by everyone as they revolve really slowly. And it got a laugh because yeah. it's so dry. I wanted to see Andy Polk slowly realizing that he was going in a circle. <laughs> when building something, when trying to manifest something, if you have that turntable for that moment, then it's going to mean something else. You have to, it has to stay. And it started to become the physical body of the show. So it starts out as one joke moment, but becomes something else. You just have to, you have to weaponize everything. You have to use the whole, you know, mole. He likes to blame it on me because it's not cheap to have one of those things going around. <laughs> I just wanted to point out that the lines about two kinds of waiting that Lyra saw is, that came right out of Itamar. Uh, at some point I said, Itamar, feed me some stuff. And he just, you know, gave me a paragraph. That's how you have the show that seems like a whole. Yeah, so so something that Yazbek and I did sort of frequently, if we had decided a moment should be musicalized, he would sometimes say, hey, could you write a monologue for me? Could you, uh, what would this character say if this was just speech, if it wasn't a lyric? And there's something great about that for the writer because it frees you from having to be good. <laughs> You're sort of like, well, this isn't really going to end up a line of dialogue in the show. So I, I, you could just like vomit like a, a rambling speech, what the character might be thinking. So that was one of them was he was like, okay, here, I'm going to write this, this verse for Dina. 
what might she be thinking about waiting? And and I think that idea about two kinds of waiting, that was in, in there. And the second kind of waiting is that tension we were sort of looking for in the show. It's the crystallization of it that we tried to find in the playing of it, which is that it is right before you give up. Deep into the process, we discovered that Beit HaTikva means house of hope. Oh, wow. The second kind of waiting is the last gasp of hope. The next number in the show is Welcome to Nowhere, which is sung by Dina, Puppy, and Itzik. Just in case Tufik and the band are under any illusions about what sort of place Betatikfa is, during the song, the locals set them straight. We're going to hear it as it's featured on the Grammy Award-winning cast album of the band's visit. This is Katrina Lenk, John Cariani, and Itai Benson singing Welcome to Nowhere. With a P. Where you are, this is not Petartikva. Such a city, nobody knows it. Not a fun, not a art, not a culture. This is Petartikva. With a B. Like it boring, like it barren, like it bullshit, like it bland. Like it basically bleak and beige and blah, blah, blah. that no one's using build some buildings put some jews in then blah 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 talk about Welcome to Nowhere. David Yasbeck, how do you write a song about a place that is nowhere? How do you musicalize nothingness or inertia? Because <laughs> as soon as you put something to a song, it sounds interesting. Because it's not really about inertia. It's really about knowing plenty of Israeli people. It was more like, what is an Israeli wry sarcasm sound like? That's sort of the into it. So this is her home, you know, I mean, and she's going, welcome to nowhere. And that's the launch point. As soon as you have that launch point, the jokes come, the the, the images come. In the third scene, the band eat at the cafe, Dina puts on some food for them, um, but there are no more buses until the next day, helpfully for the musical. And so Dina invites the musicians to stay the night and she puts up Tufik and Khaled at her apartment and while chopping a watermelon for them to snack on uh, she tells them how she ended up living in 
nowhere and she sings the song it is what it is i was romantic and young and stupid i met my husband you know how these things go you've got your story you're in your movie you are the hero you think you know you think you know what happens you think it all will happen you think it all will go a certain way you think you know the story you think a happy ending about you don't know the story first up let's talk about the watermelon just because i'm curious to know whether you ever risked losing a, a digit Katrina, was was that violin playing at a risk at any point? Being a string player uh, musician, you learn very early on to protect your fingers. So it's a very instinctual thing. I mean, in general, we all protect our fingers, but especially like, you know, don't play basketball. <laughs> um, so that was already in there. But we did a lot of, Cromer was so patient with me. I was like, I asked for like watermelon time so I could practice <laughs> with the knife and the cutting board and the... The, the, the props and everything had to be like, it was a lot of finagling. And sometimes the watermelon was very small and sometimes <laughs> it was really ripe. And sometimes it was, you know, it was a, it was a, it was a wild card. So you never really knew what was going to happen. Um, sometimes it fell on the floor. Sometimes it went in the audience. Lucille Ball used to say, never work with a watermelon. <laughs> Shoot, I wish I'd known. When we were doing Our Town, I just remembered like the, the most stressful thing in the show was the beans. The, the women that had to do the, the work with green beans, like were getting really angry about the amount of time the beans were taking up. There's like a bit of a, a thread here. David Cromer, minimal set, maximum vegetables. Just any kind of fruit or vegetable, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. fresh produce. Because then you can snack after a scene is over. Oh, yeah. When it was a good watermelon, we were all so happy backstage. <laughs> <laughs> But also she cuts it with such kind of like menace. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it sort of belies the fact that she's talking about, she's kind of resigned to her lot. She's saying, it is what it is. I'm resigned to it. Die, watermelon. Yeah. Because <laughs> the movie has the character uh, with a much bigger watermelon doing one big chop and then just... Yeah, she rips it apart with her hands. Like a rib cage for open heart surgery. <laughs> you know? It tells you so much about that character. She yeah. just tears it apart with her bare hands. <laughs> We're trying to communicate what happened in the movie with the watermelon. <laughs> on stage in a more controlled environment and on the beat, which was yeah. <laughs> very important. Brilliant. Well, <laughs> one of the things I also enjoy about the song is it sort of ends. She says, blah, blah, blah. Blah, blah, blah. And there's, and there's no button or anything. And you're like, oh, that, that was it. Okay, fine. Like, but in a, in a different musical, it's the first solo song we hear in the show. In a different musical, it would then be like, but at night when the moon is out, I dream of being a dancer. And yeah. there would be some hope or aspiration <laughs> yeah. in, the, in like the middle section. And there's not. It's just like, no, life, life's pretty ordinary here. Uh, which I really enjoy. But were you very conscious when you were writing that, David Yazbek, about subverting audience expectations? Well, no, no. I wasn't conscious about subverting stuff. When I started writing musicals, I came into it kind of late. Like it never was something I, I dreamed of. And I remember thinking... I'm gonna do whatever I, you know, an I want song? No, I want song, you know. And then, of <laughs> yes. course, you know, eight months into the writing process, I'm writing an I want song because there was a reason, you know. Yeah. As soon as you say, I'm gonna change stuff, you're, you put the word I in there and you're gonna screw everything up because you're thinking about yourself and your reputation and not the show. This show, the movie it was based on and the aesthetic that the movie had that, that Itamar and I from the very beginning tried to capture in a musical and that uh, David Cromer actually really helped us realize completely, and the cast, of course, 
that's what guided these kind of decisions. So when I found myself typing and blah, 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 and then an ellipses, that felt like a really good ending to that song. <laughs> like that felt like the desert stretching off into nowhere. And that is one of my favorite things about this show is how much of the vital information is carried in silence in those ellipses. And so you find out about Dina having an affair, you find out about Tufik's wife dying, you find about his son, all of that happens in a, in a sentence that trails off into nowhere. So I guess this is kind of the musical equivalent of what happens in dialogue. There's a little something that Itamar can speak on and David, it's called subtext. <laughs> and musicals, not, just, not only musicals, but a lot of scripts and even plays forget that that's what gives something a verticality and a depth. And um, it's very hard to do in a musical, but this story and that material we were adapting just tells you that's it has to be that, you know? And, yeah. and that's something that Cromer understands very deeply and that I learned more about in doing this show. Even though Itamar and I had gone from at the beginning thinking, wow, this needs more incident to, uh, no, that's not, that's not what it needs. It needs... It needs truth. Itamar's crafting of like when you take a word out, like, but we're going to get right to here and then we're not going to say it. And that manifested in the idea that the song just stops, that it is what it is, just kind of like that you go blah, 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 and you say, I don't feel like finishing this song, <laughs> which you didn't start out to do that. You didn't say, I always wanted to do a thing where you stop a song in the middle. I, 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 your point, David, about not wanting to, impose yourself on it. But when the moment presented itself, you guys decided you could break that rule, that songs don't just stop in the middle. You don't set out to do it, but when you arrive at the choice, if you let yourself, that's sometimes where innovation does happen. It is what it is, is technically speaking a reprise. It's a reprise of waiting, right? There's a melody being repeated. So because it's a melody we've heard before, you can truncate it. It is what it is, is the only song I recall being involved in deciding we needed something there. There were outside notes that said, why aren't there more numbers? Why aren't there more songs? Why aren't there bigger numbers? Why aren't there, you know, there's always people outside of the process wanting it to be more recognizable. Sometimes the aud audiences at like early readings or workshops will teach you a lot because the collective group mind unifies and they get on the train and then they tell you things you didn't even know about where you went off the tracks. So I remember watching an early workshop of the show and it got to the moment where it is what it is now appears in the show. And right before that, Dina says, I thought maybe I would be a dancer. I could move to a bigger city. But and then Halet is like, why didn't you? And we're in a musical and you can feel <laughs> the audience be like, oh, we're gonna, she's going to explain in song the answer to that question. And then she didn't. Until I watched an audience watch that moment, I didn't know there was a song missing there. But yeah. suddenly it was unmistakable. Like, we need her to sing. It's the thing about knowing the pauses aren't too many. The thing about knowing you can stop in the middle of a song, the audience tells you that. And you get the chance in previews to test this stuff out. And the audience won't lie. There was this moment when I saw the audience engaging and hooking in and leaning in. And it was a very intimate experience with what was happening on stage. And that's when it was sort of like, oh, that's this, that's what this show is. That was two weeks before we opened when I was like, this is it. You know, that's what we've been honing all this time is that relationship. Okay, we have a little quiz. What you will need is some sort of noise that you can make to buzz in. You never, ever want to ask me for that. I feel like David Yazbek's probably got a small orchestra of in implements that could be used. I'm excited to find out what it's going to be. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> 
Amazing. Itamar, have you got something? <laughs> Good luck buzzing in with that, my friend. Chroma, do you have something? Yeah, I'm going to make the noise that Tony makes when it spins, which is... <laughs> Amazing. And Katrina's got a tambourine. <laughs> yes. Okay, here it comes. This is uh, the Piece by Piece Band's Visit Quiz, or as I like to call it, the Band's Quizit. Uh, <laughs> thank, thank you. I'm nervous. Okay, question one. Which U.S. city is twinned with the Israeli city of Petatikva? Oh, I used to know this. Yeah, this is somewhere in my brain, but I don't. Yeah, me too. I can't get it. I can't get it out. Go, Chroma. Is is it Austin, Texas? No, and you're going to kick yourself when you find out. It is, in fact, Chicago. Um, oh. where, where David Cromer lives for decades. <laughs> did you not know that? I'm shocked and appalled. No, it doesn't come up that often. No. What sort of research did you do? I'm, I'm appalled. None, none. <laughs> Number two, the movie version of the band's visit was the Israeli submission for the foreign language film category at the Oscars, but was rejected by the Academy. <laughs> David Yazbek, why was that? Because there wasn't enough, quote unquote, foreign of one foreign language in it. There was a lot of English because that's that the whole point of it was that they were struggling with English to communicate. Right. That was a and that was complete bullshit, and it would have won. Yeah, <laughs> a, a crying shame. So it contained over fifty percent English, and therefore it was rejected from that category, which is very very sad. But there you go. Uh, number three, in which nineteen thirty seven musical comedy did the song "My Funny Valentine" first appear? It was Rogers and Hart. It's Rogers and Hart. Oh, I, oh, oh ding, 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 Chroma. Uh, 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 babes in Arms. Absolutely right. Yes, you get a point. Very good. Uh, number four, you don't have to buzz in for this. I'm going to ask you each for an answer. According to the New York Times, approximately how many different recordings have been made of Summertime? I'm going to take the nearest estimate. And just so people know, Summertime is a musical meeting point for some of the Israelis and some of the Egyptians in the song. How many times have been recorded? Go, Yazbek. I'm going to say 6,000. Okay, Chroma? I was going to say 5,000. Katrina? I'm just going to go low. I'm going to say 500. It's bold. Itamar? I'll say 999. <laughs> <laughs> just undercut Yazbek's answer. The actual answer is over 25,000. Wow. Isn't that mad? Wow. Wow. Yeah. But uh, like, I guess that's why it has such currency that everybody, yeah. everybody knows summertime. Um there you go. So point for Mr. Yazbek. Uh, number five, Omar Sharif, the man rather than the song, angered the Egyptian government and almost had his citizenship withdrawn by the regime because of his relationship with which actress? Go, Yazbek. Now, not many people know this. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's really not. It's really not. Barbara? Is it Barbara Streisand? Uh, you're right. I, I'm going to give you both a point. They had an affair, I think, after... Was it Hello, Dolly? They're in together? Um, Funny Girl. Funny Girl, of course, yeah. But she had strongly supported Israel um, in the Six-Day War. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, they were not happy. Uh, number six. It's another uh, guesstimate one. How many records did Um Kaltoum sell in her lifetime? I will t- uh, what's your answer, David Yazbek? It's, it's, it's in millions. So, I'm going to say 50 million, five zero. Strong. Uh, Katrina? I'm going to go 100 million this time. Okay, Itamar? Um, 75 million. 
<laughs> David Cromer? Not, uh, 90 million. And the winner is Itamar Moses. Yes, on the board. They say it's over 80 million, but I think 80 million is the nearest. So 75 is not bad, but that's, that's huge, isn't it? Wow. Number seven, in which US state would you find the unincorporated community of nowhere? Where is nowhere USA? I'm going to guess Utah. It's good, but it's not the one. If you listen carefully to our last episode on Fun Home, this did actually crop up. Oh, it's in Pennsylvania? No, it was the other one out. It's, it was in Oklahoma. Okay. I was hoping it was going to be in Chicago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All the answers are actually Chicago. I mean, it's going to be in your house. <laughs> well known to be on 1953. Number eight. Uh, three musicals have won exactly the same number of Tony Awards for their original production as the band's visit. Does anyone know what they are? Ding, ding, ding. Is Billy Elliot one of them? Yeah, absolutely right. Billy Elliot also won 10 in 2009. Any more for any more? Oh, uh, 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 Hello, Dolly. Yes, very good. I don't know why I remember that. <laughs> You're an old musical theater queen. I was going to say, I thought you were straight. <laughs> no, it's because I looked at where we ranked. Yeah. That there were two ahead and that we were in a three-way tie for third. And I guess that anything that's bound up with my self-worth, I remember. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there is one more. Anyone want to guess? It's, it's an older one. Music Man. Oh, no, that was more probably. Music Man. It's South Pacific, so it's even older. 1949. Oh, all right. Uh, and one more, Tony won. Number nine, which three productions, all musicals, won the Big Six Awards? So the Best Musical Score, Book, Actor, Actress, and Director. The Producers was, must have been one of them, right? No. I'm guessing because not lead actress. Right. She was supporting, yeah. Uh, Hamilton? No, same reason. Same same rationale, yeah. Yeah, because Cynthia Erivo won over uh, Philip Sue. Good knowledge. See, Itamar's coming out with loads of tidbits here. <laughs> and that's not even, there's no self-interest in that either. Um, the answer to that question was South Pacific, Sweeney Todd, and Hairspray. Hairspray, uh, yeah. What a mix of things. Yeah. I know. You know what I mean, that's the strange yeah. thing about trying to like assess musicals as like this like monolith of things that's like, Stories are so damn different. <laughs> and ex- execution is so completely different. Sweeney Todd and Hairspray in the same sentence is always yeah. interesting. Yeah. Last question. Which actor saw the band's visit on Broadway and said this? If you live within 3,000 miles of New York City, see this brilliant play with music. Wherever you are, take a bus, take a train, take a plane, steal a car. It's perfect. Ding, 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 ding. David Cromer. Patty Lapone. It's good, but it's not the one. It's a male actor with an alliterative name. Marcel Marceau. <laughs> right, it was the only sentence he uttered yeah, that yeah, year. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which is also a bit of trivia. <laughs> <laughs> what a nice thing to say. Isn't Who it lovely? It? Uh, um, yeah. And the, again, it's one you should know, David Cromer, because I remember like, forwarding it to you going, this is so cool, because Alan Alder just said this about your show. Um, Alan so Alder? Yeah, what a guy. He Aww. said, it lifts your heart, even if you suffer from sagging heart which I didn't know was actually a condition, but apparently it is. So the results at the end of the band's quiz it, <laughs> the winner is Itamar Moses with no three way. points. Yeah. yeah. I did not expect this, you guys. I'll send you a little trophy you can put next to your Tony Award. Tina Fey won. <laughs> Tina Fey yeah. was the winner of the quiz. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> is that a running joke for you guys? Because, like, Mean Girls won zero Tonys. Can I tell the story of Itamar, or do you want to? Please. Well, it's just on Tony night, the Tonys have decided that the creative artists and the writers aren't interesting television. So they generally give those awards during the commercials. I don't think anyone secretly knows who's going to win, but best book for a musical was given during the broadcast, like while it was on the air, because 
I think everyone assumed Tina Fey is rightfully famous for her award shows, speeches, hosting, acceptance speeches, because she's brilliant and she's hilarious. So they gave Best Book to a Musical on the actual show, assuming it would probably be TV star Tina Fey who got up to accept. And 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 instead it was Itamar who, who I, I have to say, much as there was sort of like a kind of a popular feeling that we might do well, had to walk around going, well, I'm, of course, I'm not going to because Tina Fey is going to win. And then we got there and it seemed very clear that Tina Fey was going to win. And so there was a turning point in the evening when we realized, oh, yeah, <laughs> we're not sure how this might go. It was a strange moment. I think the last time that they'd actually aired Best Book and not given it during the commercial was the year Book of Mormon was nominated. In that case, they correctly surmised that Matt and Trey were going to win. So they don't usually broadcast it. It was your moment in the sun. <laughs> and his speech was brilliant. I love it. And on that very show-busy note, we find ourselves at the end of part one of Piece by Piece, The Band's Visit. That's the end of The Band's Visit, part one. But don't worry, there's more music, chat and quiz action to come in our next episode. Do join us for The Band's Visit, part two. We would love to hear what you think about Piece by Piece. Don't forget you can email us, piecebypiecetalkshow at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at pbp underscore podcast or on Facebook at Piece by Piece Podcast. Piece by Piece was recorded remotely by Joe and Nikki Davison for Auburn Jam Music. Our guests were David Cromer, Katrina Lenk, Itamar Moses and David Yazbek. Our theme music is by Ben Cox and our production assistant is Olivia Dowden. Piece by Piece is devised and presented by Joe Bunker and produced by Pint of Wine. Thank you for listening to Piece by Piece. Do join us again. Thank you.